Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. I am your host, Tracy Siska, Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about our transparency and accountability work at chicagojustice.org. Today we cover our, we hear our interview with uh, Deputy Public Safety Inspector General Deborah Witzberg. We talk about their recent analysis of the grievance process, um, a process by which the union, the Fraternal Police and their membership, the mostly patrol officers in the Chicago Police Department and other ranks actually, um, through their other unions, get out of responsibility for their actions. You know, the people holding everyone else responsible for their actions then use this process through the union contract to get out of taking responsibility for their actions. There are pros in that. So we hear that interview. That interview is about half an hour. Then we come back uh, after the break and talk about why cops are quitting in the droves they are. We talk about an interesting report, article in Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting um, about the thin blue line behind crime wave reporting. It's about New York, but it applies to Chicago. And then we're going to talk an interesting column editorial op-ed in the Washington Post about why Biden's crime package is not going to produce what people think it's going to. Really quickly on the show, on Wednesday, we have an interview with Alexandra Black, a partner at Miller, Shackman, and Beam, and Annie McGowan, a senior research associate at the Civic Federation. That's canned. It'll be aired on Wednesday at 5.30 at our normal uh, broadcast time. And basically we're talking about a report they helped co-author called for the Chicago Council of Lawyers called New Directions for the Office of the Clerk of Cook County Circuit Court, an office no one pays attention to but is very, very important around accessing court activities and all kinds of reasons why it really can either hurt or help indigent defendants, indigent people in the court, people and underserved communities, and it hasn't for a long time, and whether there's a possibility that it may going forward. Okay, before we get to the interview, you, viewers, can sponsor this show if you go to chicagojustice.org or drop us an email at infochicagojustice.org or hit us up on any of our social media, Instagram, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, Facebook. We can give you send you the link. Sponsor this show, allow us the ability to not only do the show that we're doing three times a week for you, but stream special events, the police board meetings, the um, city council meetings, committee on public safety, the Cook County board meetings, the state general assembly meetings related to justice. We'd like to stream them all and bring you guests and commentary, um, but we need your help in sponsoring it. Okay. So we're going to go to our first segment here, which is with uh, our interview with Deputy Public Safety Inspector General Deborah Witzberg. It's an office I played a big role in helping create, and basically they audit the police department. This one in particular is a review analysis of the grievance process. It's a really, really important thing. It's been uh, a hidden way and remains a hidden way now about how the police department and police officers skate responsibility and oftentimes have their records kind of expunged and erased. It's really a fascinating um, discussion. It runs about 28 minutes. So I'll come back and talk about it a little bit. 
and then uh, we'll get on to our other segment. So hopefully, um, well, hopefully, I will see you on the other end. Enjoy the interview with Deborah, and we'll be back in a little bit. Deborah Witzberg, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you jumping back on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, so I want to get the title right. We're going to talk about um, a, re- a recent report you guys dropped, a review of the disciplinary grievance procedure for Chicago Police Department members. Now, before we get into the findings, and the report is amazing, I really love all the work you guys are doing. I'm so glad I was part of actually making this office happen. I was told years ago by a source in IPRA, a very high source in IPRA, that the grievance process was so screwed up that the city, most of the time, when someone, an officer grieved his discipline, his or her discipline, they would most of the time cave automatically rather than even go through arbitration because they didn't want to spend money knowing they'd lose. So we got told that 15 years ago, and we've been trying to get, we tried to get IPRA, we tried to talk to, when they set up COPRA to force them to make data about this available. Obviously, they didn't want no part of it. All right, so that's the back end of my story about grievance, grievance process. So can you explain to people, our audience, what is the grievance process? Yes, I, I can. Although, as you point out, um, the grievance procedure is part of this incredibly procedurally complex disciplinary system, which, you know, really threatens to collapse under its own weight in terms of complexity. Um, and, and I think it's really important to understand this specific piece of the process that we're going to talk about today against that larger backdrop mm-hmm. and against the backdrop of how little meaningful transparency there is into the police disciplinary system. So with all of that in mind, the disciplinary grievance procedure is the set of mechanisms by which members of the Chicago Police Department can challenge certain kinds of discipline which has been recommended for them. So in this Byzantine process, we have investigating agencies, primarily the Bureau of Internal Affairs and COPA, which conduct disciplinary investigations. They reach investigative findings and where they have sustained disciplinary allegations, they recommend discipline. Depending on the amount and type of discipline recommended and the rank and position of the CPD member who is being disciplined, there are different options available to that member to challenge or sort of like an an appeal to challenge the recommended discipline. And so some of those challenges, some of those avenues to challenge fall under the sort of grievance procedure available to sworn members of the police department represented by the major unions. And that is the Fraternal Order of Police representing police officers, everybody below the rank of sergeant. And then the, uh, the PVPA, which has different units representing um, supervisors, sergeants, captains, and lieutenants. And so we undertook in this project to look at the way the grievance process works and what its outcomes look like, both in terms of substantive outcomes for discipline of Chicago Police Department members who have been found to commit commit misconduct, have committed misconduct, Um, but also what it looks like from a public transparency perspective. Okay, and it's not transparent at all. As someone who's followed this since 1995, I can tell you it's not transparent at all. And if and when we used to meet with internal affairs every six months, that of internal affairs used to meet the head of IPRA for every six months, 
and even the answers we would get from them always varied. IPRA was supposed to be notified of the findings in the end of the grievance process, but often wasn't. They didn't know things happened. They didn't know sentences were reduced. So we'll get to all of that. What data did you all look at in this process and how, well, yeah, in what time frame? We looked at uh, disciplinary cases which were grieved in one of these grievance procedure pathways. Um, between the end of 2014 and the end of 2017. Okay, so let's start with, let our audience know. So there, this process, if it gets to an arbitrator, arbitration, if there's an arbitrator overseeing this process, which from my understanding is just some kind of private lawyer that acts as a judge, more or less acts as a judge in negotiating or finding a resolution to this dispute. How is that person picked and how many arbitrators have been used over this time period? Because that seems to be an important piece of this. So, so that's right. So arbitration is one of these grievance pathways. And you're right, the, there's an attorney who acts as an arbitrator who's sort of a finder of fact, an adjudicator. Um, our, our formal arbitrations involve an evidentiary hearing and then a written opinion by an arbitrator. Um, a couple things to be said about those arbitrators. So to answer your question, um, the arbitrator is selected by mutual agreement of the parties, so the city and the CPD member, right, um, from a quote unquote working list of approved arbitrators. There are no formalized criteria for selection of those people. There are no criteria for removal of those people from the formalized list. Um, an exceptionally high percentage of arbitrations, which is to say 90% of grievance arbitrations between the end of 2014 and the end of 2017 um, were assigned to three arbitrators. So three people decided 90% of the grievance arbitrations um, in a three-year period. Right, and this is very important because you're getting, they have to be mutually decided upon, right? So if these people um, hand down a decision that is in, the, the eyes of either party, the union more or less, or the CPD too far in a direction, they may not get re more business. They may not get selected. I think that's a reasonable read of the absence of criteria for either selection or removal. I, the other, I think really important thing to keep in mind about these arbitrators is that they are by virtue of the sort of structure of the system here, they are endowed with a huge amount of authority and discretion. So when an arbitration comes to them for adjudicating, for, for a decision, they have very broad um, authority in terms of what they want to look at. And what that often amounts to is basically new fact finding. So by, by the time something comes before an arbitrator, there has been an investigation by one of the investigative bodies, and that body has come to investigative findings and a recommendation. The arbitrator is not bound in any way by the findings or the recommendations of the investigative agency, which is to say they can, in a way that is marked by pretty unfettered discretion, engage in totally new fact-finding and a totally new sort of decision-making process. Their decisions then, once an arbitrator has made a decision, um, those decisions are subject only to very, very limited appeal to the circuit court and the circuit court is bound to give a great deal of deference to an arbitrator's decision. And so we, there, we have this sort of asymmetry where 
the arbitrator is not bound at all to give any deference to the findings of fact or the recommendations made by the entity with the closest to the ground access to the information. Um, and once the arbitrator makes that decision, there are only very, very limited grounds on which it can be overturned. Yeah, that sounds like an excellent system, right? That Add that up and with no transparency about what's going on um, seems pretty scary to me. Okay, let's- Agreed. <laughs> and I think, you know, the, the sorry to interrupt, I, the, the recommendations in this report really come from two angles here. One is to improve the way this process works, right? There's sort of a basic procedural fairness concern about a system in which three people who are not particularly subject to public scrutiny decide 90% of the cases. So, you know, substantive improvements to the system, but also improving the transparency into it. This whole system largely operates outside of public view. And I think, you know, what you can see from, from the police department to some extent, and certainly from the law department's responses to our recommendations, is that that lack of public transparency is not accidental, it's strategic. So in, it for, in response to a number of our recommendations, the city articulated the view that it would compromise their litigative strategy to provide more transparency <laughs> into the system. Where we are in a world where the, the city of Chicago's law department explicitly articulates the view, a view of this problem that kind of, you know, values litigative strategy over public transparency, I think that explains a lot of where we are with the police disciplinary system. Right, and they simply don't want people to know how badly the process works. That's what that's about. Litigation strategy, if they have one, that cracks me up. I mean, for better or worse, whether you like um, Mayor Lightfoot's tenure, she um, did call out just how bad the Department of Labor, this same piece of the law department, presents case to the police board when she was um, head of the police board. She, would, she told them, start hiring outside counsel. Your lawyers are horrible. They're putting on horrible cases. But to her credit, that was all done in public. And the police board's um, reasonably transparent and incredibly transparent to this process compared to this process. Um, God, this is scary. I wonder what if we looked on... Well, we're sending a bunch of FOIAs in based on this. Um, it's time this process gets open, but I can just imagine how scary these numbers are long-term if you looked at 20 years. Okay, let's check a couple of the findings here. 78% of cases resulted in discipline being reduced or eliminated. That's a mind-boggling number. That is three out of every, more, just over three out of every four cases where the, the discipline recommendation is reduced. So it is a staggeringly high number. It, it's, I think, important to, to understand, to consider it in context, right? So 78% yep. um, of cases, you know, one way of looking at that number would be to say that, you know, you would expect people to grieve cases where there is some sort of vulnerability in the finding. And so why would people grieve a case if there wasn't some reason that it would be that the discipline would be reduced or eliminated. You know, we need to understand that number in the context of what else we know about how the system is working. So in a system where um, there's, a, there's a fair amount of, you know, control over who is deciding these cases as we talked about and what, they, um, what the outcomes might be, 
it's easy to imagine a world in which um, people sort of grieve discipline as a matter of course, not because it comes to some specific concern about the actual content of the investigation, but because in the substantial majority of the time, the discipline is reduced or eliminated. Right, and that's what we heard, which was they grieve everything. And they're so, the city's so used to losing those in arbitration, they just come to some settlement agreement as a matter of course, and just reduce it somewhat 50%, 70%. We looked at the, we looked at the settlement process as well. Um, and settlements are frankly poorly controlled as a matter of policy. Um, a settlement can happen at, at a variety of stages in this sort of investigative and disciplinary process. And it can have a range of outcomes. Um, what we found often is the case when we looked at settlements is that they result in uh, the elimination entirely of certain rule violations from a disciplinary record. So Chicago Police Department members are disciplined, generally speaking, for violating the, the rules and regulations of the Chicago Police Department. Not all rules, not all regulations, not all policies are created equal. What we found when we looked at settlements is that some very serious rule violations um, about which we should all be very concerned were very frequently removed entirely from a disciplinary record when the case was subject to a settlement. So for example, rule 14 of the Chicago Department's Rules and Regulations prohibits the making of false reports. This is sort of at the very center of policing and criminal prosecution, right? Really important to think about CPD. I know you and I have talked about this before. The Chicago Police Department is part of the sort of criminal justice ecosystem. And when we, when we think about the sort of paroxysm of violent crime with which Chicago is currently faced, we need to be thinking about effective policing in the context of fair and effective criminal prosecution in a way that is actually tailored to keep people safe. So all of that is to say, the ability to testify in court in criminal prosecutions is a vital part of a police officer's job. If a police officer has been found to have lied, told a lie, um, then they, their ability to testify in court is forever afterwards compromised. And, and defendants in criminal proceedings have a constitutional right to that information. What we found when we looked at settlements, uh, disciplinary grievance settlements, is that in our sample, there were 21 cases that were subject to settlement, a settlement process where there was a Rule 14 violation that had been sustained. That is to say, an investigating agency, either BIA or COPA, reached findings that a member of the Chicago Police Department had lied. And in all 21 of those cases in our sample where there was a sustained Rule 14 violation, that violation was removed from the record in the course of the settlement proceeding. And therefore, for all 21 of those CPD members, despite the fact that an investigating agency had found that they had violated Rule 14, that violation is not part of their disciplinary history. That is mind-blowingly horrible because it's like erasing, um, it's erasing their history. I didn't know that they were doing that. That to me is um, very, very serious. Um, no wonder they go through grievance process so much. Um, that's fascinating. I wonder, were you able, I'm sure you weren't, but I'm going to ask anyways, like any semblance of why, they, why that process, why they were doing that? 
Well, uh, one of the recommendations we made around the settlement process, many of which were geared toward this sort of transparency question, you know, how much view the public has into how these processes work and what their outcomes are. One of the recommendations we made was that in any settlement agreement, which entails the removal of certain rule violations, that the document, you know, the, the record of that agreement include an explanation for why those rule violations were removed. That is one of the recommendations in response to which the city offered that it would not follow that recommendation because doing so would compromise attorney-client privilege and its, its sort of legal strategy. Attorney-client privilege. Yeah, that one's a loss on me, but like half their excuses. And we're gonna talk about one right now. We're gonna talk quickly about a couple of recommendations. So one of your recommendations, obviously open this up and be transparent about what's going on, right? Not a, not a hard thing to understand in 2021, you know. Um, they disagreed and said they lacked resources. Now, before I get you to comment, I wanna tell you a quick story. We used to meet with the head of internal affairs when I was part of the Chicago Coalition for Police Accountability and the head of IPRA every six months or so in the Corporation Council. We were in a boardroom at the Cook County Public Defender's Office. There's like 25 people around this big table. And on the opposite end of the table is the head of internal affairs and the general counsel. And my colleague who since passed recently, unfortunately, Harold asked, so, why doesn't the internal affairs have a dashboard or a website once they release data every quarter like IPRA does? And their response then, this was probably 2015 or so, their response was, we're looking, we can't find the appropriate website to do that. <laughs> and he's since retired now, but Commander Jonathan Lewin, who was like their, their, their technology guy, was sitting right next to me. And he, we know each other. He was on my radio show years ago. He put his head, he put his face in his hands and tried to like disappear out of the room. I could feel him like hoping that no one would turn to him and ask him how the Chicago, the police department that's won awards for their like clear map website could not have an appropriate website to do it. We didn't ask him, but anyways, that's just how untransparent they wanted to be. So what did they, what did this, the police department and the department of law say to open this process up to transparency? So there are some specifics, but I think broadly, um, there were sort of two categories of responses where the law department and the police department declined our transparency recommendations. And those had those responses, such that they are, have to do with, as you say, a lack of resources. And there are a couple of places uh, in which the law department said they don't have the data. They don't themselves have access to the data which they would you know, need to provide to the public in order to meet our recommendations. I'll say a couple of things about both of those categories. Um, I, I am myself, as I think many others are, running short on patience with the notion that the lack of transparency into the police department and the police disciplinary system is a resource problem. The city of Chicago is paying tens of millions of dollars a year, tens of millions of dollars a year to settle misconduct lawsuits um, and to pay judgments. If we were serious about this being a resource problem, we would be taking measures to reduce the problems which lead to those situations. That's what I would say about resources. With respect to access to data, if the law department representing the city of Chicago does not itself have access to the data which would be required for public transparency, I can imagine no stronger argument 
for the need for improved data collection, data quality, and data access. So where this is the same administration, um, which posed challenges to an ordinance before the city council recently, which would have allowed our office to greatly increase the amount of data about police disciplinary histories, which is readily and publicly available, perhaps they themselves could make use of that sort of resource. Yeah, they just don't want it. I mean, that's the bottom line. I will tell you that we have this ordinance that we got introduced last under ROM, and now it's we're, we're going to be pushing it soon again. We're adjusting it to include the grievance process data on transparency, but it's called the Police Settlement Transparency and Accountability Ordinance. And it's basically to open up data around litigation involving civil settlements and judgments against the police department for anything, but mostly for misconduct. And you know, we've had various, I've had some national level experts looked at it, gave us input into it, but I've had some local people, um, supposedly in the police reform field, you know, area, and they were talking about, well, that's way too much work for the Department of Law to keep track of who's, who is working on what case and how much time they spend on it. And if they shop it out to a private firm, how are they going to keep track? That's way too much. And huh? Wait, wait a minute. That's what private lawyers do. Whether like my, my, I have a friend who's a high level consultant in DC here. She bills out her time every in six minute increments. She keeps track of her time in six minute increments. The Department of Law can do it. Now I'm not saying go back over the last 40 years and go through all the cases and figure it out. I'm not that stupid. But going forward, if you tell them to keep track of it, they should be able to do it. But to some degree, this is a lack, it's, I, in my opinion, it's all a lack of will. It, it, uh, I agree. It is a lack of will. And I think that, you know, one way to read these responses is sort of to say, is to hear the city saying, we're not going to make this information available or publicly transparent. Trust us. And I think the moment, the, the place at which we find ourselves is that the city hasn't earned that trust, hasn't earned public confidence. Um, and so what the city of Chicago owes to members of the public and not for nothing, members of the police department is meaningful transparency into how this system works. Right, I, I, as I say, the union, and you take the Laquan McDonald case, for example, their extremist view of representing to the loudest they possibly can, any cop who does anything wrong, full on bore, no matter how bad it is, puts, it hurts, the people it hurts the most besides the public is their actual other members of their union, right? In the Laquan McDonald case, they were doing everything right until um, Jason Van Dyke got out of it, pulled up on the scene, didn't know what was going, got out of his car and shot. And then he put those other 10 officers on the block about what they were going to do. Risk going against the blue wall of silence or risk your career. And I, I view this the same way with the litigation and the police accountability system. The distrust from the public and the police accountability system is equal, if not worse, um, it, it, it's equaled or it's even worse when the police department, because the police officers themselves don't trust the disciplinary system. But if things were more public and people understood what they were actually getting in trouble for, rather than the rumor mill, that would probably put more faith in the system. And if the system sucks and they're doing things arbitrarily or there is corruption, then let's out it and get rid of it so that the police can have faith in it. At that it is it is absolutely the case in my view that all Chicagoans in uniform and out are entitled to a police disciplinary system which is transparent and robust and reliable um, and that's something that that at the moment nobody has and, and in part that goes back to sort of where we started 
which is the overwhelming procedural complexity of the system. Um, so one of the things that we've worked on recently, and maybe you've seen this, it's now up on our website, is sort of a, a comprehensive process map of the disciplinary system. And it's sort of interactive and you can, you can work your way through this process map by department member rank um, and invested in the agency and so on. And we've sort of mapped out all of the tributaries of this system. It is astonishingly complicated. It is. And no, there's no doubt about it. And very few people understand um, how the system works. And unfortunately, even crime reporters, we should not have crime reporters, we should have police reporters, but the crime reporters most of the time still don't understand how it necessarily all works. And I've never seen an article, you know, the media falling down on the job, where has been the articles about what's going on in the grievance process, right? The first thing I've ever seen published on it is this report, which is I mean, great report, but it's sad that it had to come to 2021. All right, one other recommendation um, that I wanna talk about, ladies and gentlemen, you should go to their website. The link will be up on our site. It's an um, astonishing thing to read. We could have probably talked three hours about it. So I'm gonna read the, I think it's finding three, the settlement process, which regularly results in significant reductions in discipline and the removal of rule violations from sworn members records, lacks transparency and fails to produce consistent settlement agreements that follow a consistent format. That last part is what I want to get to because that reminds me of the police board. Depending on who was writing up the charges when the superintendent was filing them and who was writing up the decisions, the foreman on those things swing dramatically. Um, and for someone who's trying to take that data and put it into a database for our police board website, uh, cpbinfocenter.org, by the way, um, it is always annoyed the, um, the crap out of me that that is inconsistent. So this basically same thing is happening in the decisions for the arbitration process. We're speaking specifically to settlement agreements there, but okay. yes, that's the idea. And I think, you know, important to be clear that when we talk about a consistent format, we're not talking about like font and spacing, right? The, yes. the notion is just that there needs to be some consistency across cases in what information is included in those agreements, what you might learn from reading them, right? And how much, again, you know, transparency into the process those agreements should provide. So that's the sort of consistency that we're trying to get out there. Right. But when you're trying to hide and cover up things and make sure reporters don't get them and I don't get them, then you purposely keep it as vague as possible so that you can't hold anyone accountable. I mean, it's the Chicago way of doing things. Well, you know, I, I we certainly did not find uh, evidence that anybody was intentionally covering right. things up, although the impact of this system is clearly one in which there is not enough information available to the public. Um, I, that's right. Right. And if it, if, in my view, if that information to the public helped the city or helped the police department, it would be public. Right. I, I am a firm believer where there's smoke, there's fire, especially in Chicago, especially around police accountability. Things are done for a way because it helps keep the system churning or it helps keep uh, things away from the public it is not an accident. That's my view I, only. Well, I think, <laughs> I mean, to go back to an earlier comment, the city has not earned the benefit of the doubt that would prevent people from thinking that. Oh, no, exactly. This is the problem. This is, um, that's entirely the problem. And we just keep doing it over and over. They think, well, we've earned the trust, trust us what? <laughs> no, you covered up the Laquan McDonald tape for how long? Right. And we can go after case after case after case. Um, anyways, you should go to the website and read it, ladies and gentlemen. It's a fascinating report. Um, you can also see Deborah's on YouTube or on Facebook. You can see she's appeared 
four times maybe on this show. They keep pumping out great research, um, and hopefully this has an impact. CJP is going to be attacking this um, arbitration process, grievance process, um, and look out soon, I would say by August, for a new slew of lawsuits against, now we're looking at five agencies in Chicago related to police accountability and transparency things. Deborah, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. See you soon. All right, we are back. Once again, I want to thank Deborah Witzberg. She's been on the show four times. She's obviously great. The report's fascinating. And once again, to just reiterate, if it was the point wasn't made long enough or strong enough, when you when you see these systems like this grievance system buried so far, so deep that no one knows it's going on, and it's almost impossible to figure out what's going on, that's for a reason. Right, it helps the police department, it helps their officers, it helps the mayor's office and the city council avoid responsibility for creating such a horrible system, it helps the union. They all benefit from the crappy system that there is. Otherwise it would be changed. Right, if it wasn't serving their needs, things would be changed. Um, especially with the police department, they, they, would, they would do something to change the system if it actually wasn't benefiting them or their officers. So the system isn't set up that way by accident. It is a, um, it is absolutely purposeful. This is how this is. This is just how this game works, unfortunately. Okay, so we're gonna take a break. Um, first of all, before we take a break, if you're listening on the podcast or if you're just watching us live on the various social medias, when this gets posted. This show gets posted to our podcast tomorrow morning. You will find the links to everything we're talking about, the report here and other the other three seconds we have after the break. You will find the images that we show and you will find um, you will find it all on that post on our website that sends the podcast up. Um, so we'll be back in one minute after this ad about our nation program. And um, if you want to get involved, cjpnation.org. While you're watching the ad, type that in, and then we'll be back in one minute. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation. Okay, we are back. We're going to move on to our second segment. And it is an article, it's spurred by an article from the New York Times. Why the police, why police have been quitting in droves in the last year. Now, ladies and gentlemen, anyone want to hazard a guess? <laughs> um, some of this I think is interesting. Some I think is just kind of a joke. Because the basic line is demands for racial justice demands for accountability in the justice system are going to spur cops who don't like either and don't want either, it's going to spur them to quit. 
bottom line. Now, how much is other things? That's left for debate. Maybe the article is worthy for that. Let's take a look at a couple of quotes from it and we can talk. Here's one. A survey of almost 200 police departments indicate that retirements are up 45% resignations rose by 18% in the year from April 20 through April 21 when compared with the previous 12 months. According to Police Executive Research Forum, a Washington-based policy institute, yeah, um, PERF, which is what the acronym is for the Police Executive Research Forum, I have mixed thoughts about PERF and the stuff they do, but yeah, um, wow, retirements are up after a pandemic and massive social unrest and massive calls for accountability in the justice system. Shocking. Do you think retirements went up after Ferguson? Come on. Um, and once again, I'm going to state I'm not sure it's a bad thing, especially when you get to departments like Chicago, where there is no training after you leave the department unless you opt in and go get it. Um, you have to go get it. So if you don't go get it, none of these officers, for like been there 15, 20, 30 years, they haven't gotten any retraining. Outside of an occasional video during roll call, which they did not pay attention to in front of the feds, the civil rights investigation. They were thumbing through their phones. So I'm not sure it's a bad thing that some of those officers resigned. Now, this article, more or less, um, more or less, um, <laughs> talks about features a police department called Asheville that lost 80 of their officers of their 238 person force. So let's um, take a look. Uh, Michael Harrington, thank you for the comment on Facebook. Appreciate it. Appreciate that you like our work. Share it, please. That's what I would ask. Share with others. Okay, here's a quote. The police already have, the police already had come under criticism in recent years, churning through half a dozen chiefs in the past decade and widespread complaints about Overly harsh policing, often cited in a case in 2000, often cited is a case in 2019 when an officer pled guilty to assaulting a black man after an argument over jaywalking at night with few cars on the road. Hmm. There's more. Chief David Zack, 58, said the officers were, were pushed to quit because the protests were directed at them. They said that we have become the bad guys. And we did not get into this to become the bad guys. Um, Chief, it's your officers, where that that may be, but there's few that are doing bad things. They're bad guys. They're doing bad things. What else do you categorize them as? Now, Chief, to the ones you're saying, well, those are not all of them. It's only a small number. You're right. The problem is, Chief, the reason people are pissed at your other officers, the good officers, as you would phrase them, is because those are the ones covering up for the bad officers. And that's what discovered. George Floyd died under Derek Chauvin's knee. Why two probationary officers and a very experienced officer watched it happen and did nothing. Well, the probationary officer at least asked if we should turn him over. But that's what happens. The Laquan McDonald case. Yes, one officer murdered Laquan McDonald, Jason Van Dyke. Guess what? Ten covered it up. At least ten. Let's not even talk about the ranks of the department. At least ten covered it up. 
People are pissed at your department and your officers. I'm sorry, it's your fault, a lot of it. You have a, you have a small number of officers do really bad things. You have a very large number of officers who do nothing to stop them. Very bad things, mostly to black and brown people, do nothing to stop them, cover it up. So, of course, they're pissed off at them. That's what happens when shit hits the fan. They, see, they never take responsibility. There's always some vague reason. Oh, my God, we're the bad guys. Well, what caused all this? What's the root cause of what's going on? I continue with the article. Sense that the city itself did not back its police was a key reason for departures, according to officers as well as police and city officials. Officers felt they should have been praised rather than pillared. Pillared? Pilloried? Pillared? After struggling to contain chaotic protests. No doubt about it. But you have to look at the root cause. Why are there protests? Why are people on the street? Why are there protests all over this country, my friends? Why? Back us. Really? You have a small group of officers that beat, maim, and kill black people for no reason. Because they're racist and brutal people. And the rest of your good officers, what do they do? They cover it up time and time and time and time again. That's what you guys do. You cover it up. The public is sick of that. I continue with the article. Finally, officers said they were asked to handle too much. They were constantly thrown at tangled societal problems like mental health breakdowns or drug overdoses, they said, for which they were ill-equipped, then blamed when things went wrong. Now, if this was an honest feeling from these departments, I would agree, but it really isn't. Most people, or many of the people who want defund, to talk about defund the police, are talking about taking money that's allocated for the police and putting it into some kind of social response, a response like cahoots in Eugene, Oregon, that has someone that does not have a gun showing up to a mental health crisis or a drug crisis, um, or someone just needs crisis intervention when there is no violence and there isn't re reason uh, to believe there is going to be violence. So, right? That's what they want. What did the police departments do all over the country? Pull back. Keep control. No, we can't stop responding to all the calls we respond to. We shouldn't have to, but we still need to be at all of them. No, you can't have it both ways, ladies and gentlemen. Either give up the calls, admit that you respond to things you don't need to, admit that you respond to things that you shouldn't be at because you you're ill-equipped and never going to be, and there should not be a gun on that scene. But see, here's the problem. That means we need less officers. That means the union would get smaller. There'd be less money and power involved in it all. Can't have that. I live in the District of Columbia here. They're so inept and corrupt that when they get an alternative response, which they've sort of, almost kind of, sort of, minorly set up in D.C., the cops still respond because they refuse to give up that power. It's an automatic failure. So you want credit, like, we shouldn't have to respond to these things. Okay, we'll set up the system to respond in another way. Oh, no, 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 we still have to be there. How much more hypocritical does it get, ladies and gentlemen? How much more hypocritical does it get? You can't 
we respond to everything. We shouldn't respond to everything. Okay, we're going to set up these systems so you don't have to respond to like 50% of the stuff you respond to. Oh, no, we have to respond to all of it still. It's just plain hypocrisy. And that's one of the problems with this article is that it just kind of regurgitated the reasons people talked about why they needed to, um, why they were leaving rather than pushing back with any facts. I mean, for all this part, you could have been more or less of this article. You could have been Fox News. Um, this is that was a stenographer to power kind of thing here. Not entirely, but it was not great for sure. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to move on to our next segment. It's an article by Fairness and Accuracy in the Reporting, which I wrote their uh, their newsletter, their magazine. They called it, I guess. Um, I wrote something in it, God, I'm so old, almost 30 years ago now. No, 25, 24, 25 years ago, something like that, on uh, microbroadcasting, people who run their own radio stations. It's some hypocrisy out of the FAA and um, FCC. But anyways, just reminded me of it when I saw the picture come up again. Okay, so the title of the article is Thin Blue Lines Behind Crime Wave Hype. Okay, so... Let's start with a quote. The narrative isn't a new one, and it certainly doesn't seem to be a genuine. Local conservative tabloids like The Post and New York, New York, this is New York, so it's New York Post, and New York Daily News have for years tried to stir fear of a city overrun by crime. This is what's going on and has been going on in the cities for decades. It's louder now in Chicago, and that brings me up to this point. One of the loudest people complaining is a former Chicago public school CEO. We are interviewing, we are, I am interviewing Paul Vallis, taping an interview with him on Wednesday, which will be aired next Monday. If you have questions you want, put the Mr. Vallis that you suggest we ask him about his takes on crime and violence, and he is not silent on the issue for sure. I'm not sure what has, what credibility he has on the issue. I'm kind of devoid of why he has any experience on the issue and should be taken seriously. But um, he's doing that. And this is whether, no matter what city you're in, you have elements within those cities that are pushing all all the time, no matter how much crime drops, as crime being out of control, to push their alt-right, in, incredibly conservative uh, crime and justice agenda. This is just what they're doing. It's a trope now. It's just something that they can't help but regurgitate out of their mouth. And if you look at Chicago, for instance, ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you, we talked about this last show or two shows ago. In 2020, as bad as the violence was, it didn't get up to the violence levels in 2016. That's right. Not something you hear from the media in Chicago, right? Chicago's out of control. It's unbelievable. Lori Lightfoot, our mayor, the David Brown, the superintendent, uh, Alderman Raymond Lopez, 15th Ward, and there's other aldermen. And oh my God, Paul Vallis, Bob, former Alderman Bob Fioretti, the guy who's lost for every, pretty much every office in Chicago now politically. Oh my God, crime and violence is out of control. Really, it's the best it's ever, worst it's ever been. Oh yeah, it's almost up to that worst year in, two, what was that? Uh, 2016. That's right. It doesn't mean it's good, but come on. This is a trope. It's just like urban, like, make this connection. Urban equals crime equals urban predator, right? The black male predator we had in the 80s. 
So let's talk about the article still. William Bratton, in the post on six, excuse me, June 10th, made both arguments, claiming that the city and state lawmakers went too far to aid criminals, bail reform, and defunding conversations. This is Mr. Bratton, remember, that did nothing when his officers in public at an event turned their backs in mass on the mayor de Blasio. Instead of what the military would have done, which is clamp down on them and discipline would have been going on for years, he did nothing. Remember, Bill. All right. Bill is also the Rudy Giuliani broken windows fraud. The research has shown that that was all bullshit. Crime had started dropping in Chicago, in New York before uh, broken windows was put into place. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, the same thing with Chicago and caps and community policing. Crime dro started dropping before any of that happened. And at the same time, crime dropped all over the country, near the levels, all at the same time. So it wasn't 18 or 19,000 different police agencies with got millions of different policies that made it happen. It was a phenomenon we still can't explain all over the country. Um, all right. So according to Bratton and others, the New York Post, all of these um, alt-right people, the defund movement, the defund argument drove the 2025 crime. The only problem with it, ladies and gentlemen, all the all people defunding, right? No defunding happened in major cities, really. LA, uh, Lightfoot in 19, got rid of 466 officers. That's after Rahm cut 1,400 positions and then hired, or 1,200 and then hired 1,000 back. There's just umpteens amounts of social science I could pile up that shows policing, police staffing numbers. It isn't just a number of cops, it's what you do with them. But don't let that, don't, these people don't care about science. So here's a quote from Columbia University professor Bernard Harcourt, which, oh no, this is the Columbia professor. We have a professor we've reached out to. Michigan State, and I can't remember the top, his name off the top of my head about an expert on police staffing. We're going to have him try to get him on the show to talk about it. The attacks on the movement of, to defund policing or reform bail came straight out of the conservative playbook. It's the same script from the 1960s and the reaction and response to the civil rights movement. That's right. These are people, Vallis, Raymond Lopez in Chicago, Lightfoot, Brown, others. Correlation equals causation. It doesn't, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't. You know what? Believe it or not, I lost weight during the pandemic, which also means I lost weight in 2020. So it must be my weight loss that caused the violence to spur in, in cities. It's that's how stupid their arguments are. All right. So after so let's get back to the article. This is an interesting point. It's a little long, but it's worth reading. After his election, and a sort of inverse of what is happening today, Giuliani took credit for declines in crime in the 90s that began a year before Giuliani became mayor and were part of a nationwide crime decrease. The same po politicization of crime happened in the 1990s with broken windows policing. Each time it's just manipulation to score a political, it's just manipulation to score a political point. Harcourt reminds me. The crime decrease oh, sorry, from Harcourt. The crime decreases benefited not only Giuliani and law and order Republican po politics. It also gave leaders like William Bratton, Giuliani's commissioner, political power by defining them as saviors of the city. 
Now remember, ladies and gentlemen, especially in New York, at the same time that crime had started to go down before Giuliani took, also what happened is a massive, massive, unprecedented gentrification. Unprecedented. It all happened at the same time. At the, in the same thing, Chicago gentrified to some extent too, or large swaths of city, West Loop, South Loop. I mean, you can go on, right? So that's part of it also. Now, what th this article is very good at, at putting, putting out is that you have politicians like Rudy, soon to be in prison, Giuliani, almost disbarred Giuliani, and police chiefs like Bratton and others taking credit for all these crime drops in the 90s as if they had science to prove they were the ones responsible for it. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. But they took credit. And this is part like every idiot police superintendent and every idiot cop and judge and all of these people and politician that were in the offices from the mid-90s forward till about 2014 or 15 when crime kind of plateaued. Crime just kept going down, 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 down. Three, two, three, four percent around the country, year after year after year after year. We still can't explain it. Most ethical, ethical scholars can't explain it. And it kept going down through the recession, the Great Recession of 2008. Don't know why. We expected criminologists like myself and others expected a massive swing because of the economic turmoil. It did not happen. So all these idiots, politicians, police chiefs, judges, whatever, prosecutors, they all took credit for these great crime drops. They, had, they may have had nothing to do with or they had minimal roles in, in dealing with it. And they all took credit. And now the opposite of that is happening where crime is out of control. It really isn't a police, act, police issue. It, it probably isn't mostly, it probably mostly isn't due to police and police activities. You know, we have this international pandemic thing going on and we're still dealing with unemployment and waiting for life to get back to normal. I've talked about it a hundred times in the show. So now the opposite is happening and we, Lopez has no clue what's causing it, Alderman Lopez. Neither is Fioretti, neither is Vallis, and we're going to get Vallis. If you've got questions for him, info at chicagojustice.org or hit up any of our social media and drop us questions. You can drop, drop them in now in, in the chat if you want, and we will um, put them to him. And we're recording somewhere around noon central, I think, something like that on Wednesday. And then we will um, air it on Monday, July 5th. Okay, we're going to go on to our next segment. This is uh, an editorial, I think, from a columnist in the Washington Post, Megan McArdle. And it's interesting. She kind of takes Biden, for good reasons, to task over his crime package. And she says, it's big fanfare, but it isn't really going to work. Yep. You know it. Why, why is it going to work now? Well, aspects of it for sure. Expungement doesn't really work. At least doesn't in Chicago, right? The background check companies collect the data themselves or did before the pandemic from the records themselves. They don't have to expunge that. They only have to take stuff out of their database. They buy directly from the clerk or right from the court, clerk of the court, right? 
The stuff they type in the databases independently, and you can see them up on the sixth floor of the Daily Center, or you used to be able to do it every day. They're probably in all the courthouses around the county. They don't have to take that out of their databases. So expungement sort of works. Most of the arrest information from all the crimes these people do are still in those databases. Now for here, what McArdle is talking about is the ban the box. So let's look at a couple quotes quickly. It's not clear that anyone should brag about ban the box because while it certainly tries to address a real problem, an estimated one in four former felons is unemployed, a statistic that presumably worsened during the pandemic, two different studies have reached the same conclusion, that ban the box reduced employment opportunities for black and Hispanic young men as employers who were denied the ability as em yeah, employers who were denied the ability to screen out criminal histories instead apparently resorted to cruder racial stereotypes. Yep, racial racism wins. Ding, 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 unfortunately. Next quote. Some social media phenomenon spikes as fast, as fast and sharply as the murder rate did across the U.S. cities in 2020. You generally want to look at whatever variables changed along with it. Two possible culprits for the change of the past year are the stressors of the coronavirus pandemic and the controversies over policing that followed the death of George Floyd. Or some combination of the two. Federal crime policy can do little to address either. Damn straight. It's not a crime justice issue. It is not something to be solved by the justice system, to be solved by something by social policy. I think both of those played a role, although I think the pandemic played the largest role. If the problem was policing, then it would certainly take bold government action to improve policing and community relations, but mostly at the local level. Because if policing is the problem, it is not because all the cities suddenly ran out of money to pay their police forces or because all the gun dealers, dealers simultaneously went rogue. Rather, the rupture between cops and communities made policing less effective from some combination of less active policing and less cooperation from suspicious communities. Amen. But the communities have been suspicious forever in Chicago and most urban centers. And yes, George Floyd made it worse. Eric, uh, Eric Garner made it worse. Tamir Rice made it worse. We can go on and on and on and on. Uh, Breonna Taylor, you can go on and on and on. They've made it worse. But once again, ladies and gentlemen, that making it worse is at the hands of the police department. It's not at the feet of the communities. It's at the feet of the police department. It's in their hands. Stop killing black men for no reason. You may get more cooperation and maybe less crime. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate it. We'll be back on Wednesday with the interview um, about the Cl Chicago Council of Lawyers clerk report. Then we'll be here. For, that's at 530 on Wednesday. We'll be here at 530 on Friday. Remember, if you got questions for Paul Vallis, drop them in the chat and we will um, hopefully include them in our um, in our interview with him, which will air on Monday, July 5th. Thank you all and have a great day. Uh -huh.